Open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 1. And if you are within earshot of the message today, you and I have the following in common. We have both been born. You say, wow, if he's starting out with such insights like that just right out of the gate, I wonder what else is coming up. Captain Obvious strikes again. You and I have both been born. Um, and therefore, we both have a birth story. Now, in general, people enjoy birth stories. Even birth stories that are, are rough and are hard. And are, there's, I think people actually enjoy them more. There's kind of like this weird, can you top this thing when it comes to birth stories. They enjoy reflecting upon the events surrounding uh, someone's screaming entrance into the world, outside of the womb. And they share it in various degrees of detail. Thanks to technology, nowadays you can share almost anything, right, wrong, or indifferent. And there are blogs and whole websites set up just for you to share your birth story. And if you, you can find people sharing it, like I said, in various ways. Some people journal about it. Other people hire photographers. Other people hire videographers. And they share it in various degrees of detail. And uh, sometimes it just it gives a whole... Yeah, sometimes the, uh, the, the crowning moment of glory in that story can be seen in various degrees. And, oh, whoa, wow, so you showed us that. But anyway, suffice it to say, people enjoy sharing birth stories. But that's not necessarily uh, unique to us in our day and age. Uh, not many years ago, five days into 1979, uh, a young lady's water broke in New York City. And after, count them, 30 fun-filled hours of labor... Yours truly came screaming into the world on January 7th. I love you, Mom. <laughs> Thanksgiving 2003 is not one that I will soon forget. Sarah and I were married just over a year, had come home from Thanksgiving dinner we were at my aunt's house, and we were headed to bed when Sarah started experiencing what she believed to be some indigestion from the food that she ate. And I did the only thing that a new husband and soon father-to-be uh, thought was wise and prudent at the time, which was get out of bed and finish painting the trim in the nursery. And 20 hours later, Justin Graham LaRuffa was born. Birth stories are fun. And each and every one of us has one. The Bible is full of birth stories. Uh, consider Genesis chapter 21, where Sarah laughed at the thought of having a baby in her old age. But in Genesis 21, God got the last laugh when Isaac was born. In Judges 13, we read of Manoah's wife having given birth to uh, Samson. Her womb was opened by the Lord to give birth to Samson, who would later turn a lion inside out, slay a thousand men, pull down a pagan temple, and be inducted into the proverbial hall of faith by the writer of Hebrews chapter 11. 1 Samuel 1.6 tells us that God himself had shut Hannah's womb. 14 verses later, in God's perfect timing and providence, Hannah bore Samuel, whom God would raise up to be a great prophet and an anointer of kings. Luke chapter 1 tells us of an older married couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. The angel Gabriel visits Zacharias and says that Elizabeth will bear a son even in her old age, who is none other than John the Baptist. You have a birth story. I have a birth story. And those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ are, are just overjoyed to say we have a second birth story to share. Amen? And the Bible's loaded with birth stories, but... None of them can light a candle to the birth story that we're about to read in our text today in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. So let's go there now while I read this portion of Scripture aloud. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, in all the birth stories that I called to your attention prior to reading this portion of Scripture, each of those women were considered barren, unable to have a child. But now, they wanted to have a child. Uh, they, and they, Lord knows they tried to have a child, but did not conceive. God changed that when he allowed them to conceive. In those Old Testament examples I gave you. But they wanted a child. They tried to have a child. They couldn't have a child. And were blessed by the hand of God in giving them a child. Looking at our text today, we find Mary, who we have no reason to believe, wanted to have a child at this point in her life. And we're told specifically in our text that, quite frankly, she was not trying. Look at verse 18 again. Right out of the gate. Matthew lets us know in no uncertain terms the beginning of this miraculous story of Christ's birth. Jesus was born of a virgin. And look how God had Matthew set it up. He doesn't just give us the bottom line. He wants us to feel the tension of these details that he speaks about in verse 18. In verse 18 he says, Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. Here we go. After Mary was betrothed, to Joseph. So she was committed. Now, the closest thing we have in our day and age to Jewish betrothal really is engagement, but it really isn't the same. Because, uh, it, for, for example, in order to break a commitment of betrothal required a divorce according to the law of Moses. Jewish betrothal was a big deal. And I'm not saying engagement isn't a big deal. It is. However, uh, nowadays, it's not treated with the same weight that Jewish betrothal was treated with. In fact, later on, even though they've not been married, Joseph is referred to as her husband because it's, it's, it's as good as done. So Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal was serious stuff. So Matthew lets us know that she was in it. She was committed to Joseph and it was just a matter of time before they were married. Again in verse 18, after Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but, but before they came together. So before they enjoyed sexual intercourse together because they were betrothed but not Married. So betrothal was serious stuff, but it didn't come with all the benefits of marriage. Betrothal was, in a sense, uh, uh, served as a test of fidelity for both of them. And Matthew lets us know in no uncertain terms that they were both passing with flying colors. And they were betrothed, but they were not sexually intimate. Verse 18, after Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found with child. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, had he stopped there, one would assume, okay, Mary was betrothed, but hadn't had sex with Joseph, but was found with child, so Mary had sex with another. In fact, that is what Joseph assumed, and quite frankly, who can blame him? And we'll look at that a little bit more later. 
But that's not the case because the verse says she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So right there, even though Matthew takes 17 verses to explain Jesus' human genealogy, he sums up his divine genealogy in just one part of one verse. And there you have it. This was the work of God. Now we need to understand the significance of Jesus' virgin birth. This is not just some, 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 oh, and here's a fun fact. Uh, here's something additional. This was absolutely necessary and for a few key reasons that we'll highlight today. Now, I don't want to minimize your birth story. I, I'm sure your birth story was awesome and really cool and fun to tell. I don't want to minimize the stories that we have of our own children and how God brought them uh, into existence out of the womb. Uh, but you have to understand, that they're not even in the same universe as this birth story. Even the birth stories of the Old Testament, they are awe-inspiring and amazing and truly stir us to worship the Lord who is sovereign over all things, including the womb. However, at the end of the day, and I'm not trying to minimize it, two, two people had sex and a baby was conceived. Do, do, do you understand? And God allowed that to happen just like he allows that to happen in anybody. And God blessed the wombs of these women and allowed a, a, a woman to conceive a child. But at the end of the day, practically speaking, and I don't mean to be crass, two people, two people had sex and a baby was conceived according to God's good design. This is totally different. You want a, a, a Christmas miracle? Here's your Christmas miracle. After Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. This is not just some, yeah, 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 I know, the virgin birth thing. Okay, would, would you think about it for a minute? Like, can, can you just... Th- oftentimes, the best way to understand portions of Scripture like this, which is called a narrative, is to put yourself in the story. Hi, ladies. Just for a moment, just for a moment, would you imagine, in whatever way you can in your mind's eye, an angel coming to you and saying, Hi, fear not. The Lord is with you, you are pregnant, even though you haven't had sex, and the person you're pregnant with is the Son of God. Christmas miracle. Christmas miracle. Now, I'm going to need your help in making this next point, and your neighbor needs your help. So all I need you to do, please help me out, okay? Just, just help me out. All I need you to do is, is, is look at your neighbor right now and say, he doesn't hate Christmas. Go ahead. Good. And that's, yeah, that was important. Your neighbor needed to hear that. And they need, that's a good preface for what I'm about to say. I love, 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 love me some Christmas. I love the lights. I love the sounds. I love the sights, the food, the gifts, and the, and the vast majority of the family. I love taking lights from inside our home to the outside of our home. I love taking a tree from the outside of our home, bringing it inside of our home. I love it. I love the smells. I love, the, I love eggnog. There's some fakers. Some of you are fakers. You don't love eggnog. You drink it because it's December, but you don't love it. I love eggnog. I really, really enjoy eggnog. I love, thank you, brother. I love Christmas. However, if you would just for a moment, just for a moment, reflect on how far too simply and easily pleased we are when it comes to what we tend to call a Christmas miracle. Consider the many movies out there about a long-lost relative or friend who's been estranged from their family or other friend 
who decides to rekindle the relationship or come back together or be reconciled with their family and they're trying to get home and lo and behold, what happens? Inclement weather. They're unable to make it to Christmas because planes are grounded and trains are stopped and cars are broken down. So then all of a sudden, the pieces just start to come together, right? Somebody shows up and they've got, I don't know, a moose or something and then and they get them to one point and then somebody else shows up and they've got a sleigh. Somebody else shows up and they're flying even though all the flights are grounded and then a train pulls through and all of a sudden they come in right at the moment of the Christmas dinner and it's a glorious time and hugs are, are shared and the movie ends and it's wonderful. And it's wonderful. It really is wonderful. Not a miracle. You understand that? Because if I can explain how that happened, not Not a miracle. Wonderful, yes. Joyful, yes. Just not a miracle. Not a miracle. And it's hard for us to understand this because, quite frankly, in our... Well, it's hard to understand this because we've never been born of a virgin. That would be one key fact. The other reason is, quite frankly... Uh, we are just inundated with things. Again, remember, you, you, just, you heard it from your neighbor. Peter doesn't hate Christmas. Peter loves him some Christmas. But we're just easily distracted and far too easily amazed when it's like, yeah, 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 I know that whole virgin birth thing, but it's like, whoa, gravity-defying reindeer. Woohoo! A baby was born of a virgin. A virgin. Christmas. Miracle. And the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin isn't just a fun fact or a secondary circumstance. And, and this just did. She also was a virgin. It's an, it, it is central to his entrance into the world as our Messiah and our Savior. It's just as serious as his substitutionary atoning death. It's just as serious as his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven, and his return. In fact, had he not entered the world through the womb of a virgin, none of that stuff would have mattered. It is central to the gospel that we understand and believe and see through the text of Scripture that Jesus was born of a virgin. It fulfills Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that's why later on in Matthew chapter 1... Matthew calls, the, calls this to our attention in verse 22, saying that all this was done so that it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken through the prophet. Furthermore, the virgin birth means Jesus had a sinless, sinless human nature. Perhaps you recall a sermon from our Roman series that I preached out of Romans chapter 5, saying that even though Eve took the, the fruit throughout Scripture, Adam is the one credited with the loss. He's the one who takes the blame for the sin of mankind. Romans 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. If Jesus had a human father, he would have inherited the sinful nature of his human father, Adam. Therefore, if he had a human father, he would not be the sinless Savior that we desperately needed. Now, let's read on. Look at verse 19. Matthew 1 verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, take a look at that sentence and how it's structured, and let's what I call bottom line it. What's the bottom line? What is that sentence telling us? Uh, well, we see from the text that Joseph, uh, who is her husband for all intents and purposes, decided to put her away 
secretly. Uh, in other words, Joseph has decided to break off the engagement, which if betrothal was as serious as marriage, breaking off the engagement through betrothal would be as serious as divorce. And the, and the law of Moses allowed for divorce in such cases. But he decided to do so quietly. That's the bottom line. So think with me and read with me. If that's all the verse said, for example, if, the verse, if, if verse 19 said, uh, Joseph, her husband, decided to divorce her secretly, uh, that would be sufficient, and it would get across the same bottom line point, and we'd probably, but we'd be forced to speculate as to why. We'd probably think he just didn't want to deal with the whole public trial thing or uh, pressing charges, and his heart was broken beyond belief to begin with, so he just wanted to just wanted to break it off quietly and just move on with his life. Or maybe we think he had bigger fish to fry and just wanted, wanted out as smooth as possible. Or maybe we think he just wasn't that type of guy. And although he wanted out, he, just wanted, he was a quiet guy himself and just wanted out in a quiet kind of way. Now that's not all the verse says. Look at the text. Look at verse 19. It says, Then Joseph, her husband, comma, being a just man, comma, and not wanting to make her a public example, comma, was minded to put her away secretly. And that word was minded. Minded in the Greek, it's not that he was just thinking about it. It was he had decided. He had decided to divorce her. He had decided to divorce her, however, wanted to do so in secret. Apparently, the fact that Joseph was a just man led him to not want to make a public example of her. And so he made this decision to divorce her secretly. Now, again, I ask you, place yourself in the story. Joseph, we have to talk. Uh-huh, I'm listening. No, you really should sit down. Okay. Joseph, I'm pregnant, Mary says. Oh. Of course, it's not yours. Yeah, I know. But I also didn't, I also didn't, I didn't cheat on you. I didn't, I've also, I've still never had, I've never had sex. And uh, the baby I have is from God. And I know this because an angel told me. And Joseph's like, oh. Hey, I, I gotta go. Um, can, can you blame him? Put, put yourself in the, in the story. This is before, so remember, you've got to put the whole story out of your mind and right here. This is before he's had that dream. And so, he decided to exercise a right he had, which was to divorce her according to the Mosaic law, but also to do so quietly. Now, this was an exercise of rights. This was not something he was doing that he had to do. Uh, one of the most difficult things to deal with in the Bible when it comes to divorce is that divorce is something God both allows and hates, but never commands or condones. Does that make sense? Allows, yes. Hates, yes. Says you must divorce, can't find it. It's a difficult topic to deal with and to wrestle with those two equally inspired truths. Divorce is allowed under certain circumstances, but divorce is also hated by God, but still allowed, but hated, but allowed, but hated. You say, which one of those are true? Yes. And this was a circumstance according to the Mosaic law, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, where Joseph had the right to break off this betrothal to issue Mary a certificate of divorce because of the circumstances surrounding what he believes to be an act of adultery, an act of fornication. 
that was not involving him but involving her. But he decides to exercise that right, but to do so in a quiet way. So here's the question. Why would one who is just not exercise his just rights in the law to the fullest extent? Because she should have been stoned. So why would the fact that because Joseph is just, why would it lead him to do something that was wise according to the law? That he decided to exercise this right? You know what? I've got a, things have drastically changed. I love Mary, but wow. I mean, this does change a lot. And I don't know where she's at. And she's pregnant, so she must have, she must have cheated on me. And she's, because she says that the baby's from God, so... I got to go. I, I just, this, this changes things. He's not jumping to conclusions. Seems pretty obvious. Keep your finger in Matthew 1 and turn over to Matthew chapter 5. What I want to do is show you a couple of other instances where this word, that, this Greek word that's translated as just, Joseph was a just man, where it's used in other portions of Scripture so that we can better understand why the fact that Joseph is just has led him to do what he's doing. Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 44. But I say to you, this is Jesus talking, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be... Sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So uh, this is a portion of scripture where we see there are certain blessings from God that everybody enjoys whether they love God or not. So you have the uh, saved, growing, God-loving, Jesus-loving, God-fearing Christian farmer who lives next door to the lost, reprobate, rebellious, God-hating, atheistic, whatever, other farmer, it doesn't only rain and shine sun on one farmer and not the other. They both benefit from the blessings of the sun and the rain and the wind and all the weather. Does does, does that make sense? He causes his rain to fall and the sun to shine on both the just and the unjust. Those who are saved, redeemed, born from above, and those who are not. They both benefit from, from that. Here the word just is used to speak of those who have been justified. Flip over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 and take a look at verse 49. Verse 49, Matthew chapter 13. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Once again... The same Greek word, translated in the same way into English, used here to refer to the saved as opposed to the lost. Separating the wicked from among the not wicked. The wicked from among the just. Let's look at one more text in Romans chapter 1. Perhaps you're familiar with this. Romans chapter 1. We uh, preached on this back in our Romans series. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Romans 1 verse 16, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For, it is the, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by 
faith. There it is. The just, those who have been made just, those who have been justified, those who have been sanctified, those who have been made righteous, the just shall live by faith. Now looking back at our text today in Matthew chapter 1, we gain a better understanding of why Joseph was about to do what he had decided to do. Joseph was a just man. Joseph was a believer. Joseph loved God. Joseph was more than just a do-gooder, more than just a lawkeeper. Joseph had the gift of faith and therefore, like all Old Testament believers, had faith in the promises of old that God would redeem him and all of God's people by his mercy and grace. Joseph was a just man. And because Joseph was a just man, we see in verse 19... He did not want to make her a public example and therefore decided to put her away secretly. In other words, Joseph was a recipient of the gift of faith. Joseph was a believer and a lover of God. Joseph knew the mercy and grace of God. And since God has not dealt with Joseph in the way that his sins deserve, Joseph knew he was justified in God's eyes and not because of himself, but because of God's grace. And because Joseph is a just man... He doesn't press charges against Mary, but still does what he believes to be right and seeks to divorce her. Therefore, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. His reaction, quite frankly, reflected the grace of a Savior. He had no idea he was going to be among the very hearst to behold, to hold, to touch, to hug and to snuggle, and to raise. We can learn from Joseph's initial reaction to the situation at hand because Joseph didn't think he had been wronged. He knew it. Right? She's pregnant. And I know how babies are made. And I didn't make it. It would be wrong if I had made it. But even so, it's not me, it's... So there was not a shadow of doubt in Joseph's mind. I wonder, hmm, I don't know. Ah, Flip a coin. Yes, I've been sinned against. I think I'll leave her. This was just common sense. You can't blame him. But even when he thought he was wronged and knew he was wronged, he responded in a way that reflected the grace of the stepson that he was about to have that he didn't know. Which begs the question for us today. How do you respond to someone when you believe Or no, you have been sinned against. Picture a situation in your life in which so far as you can tell, by God's grace, you're doing everything right. You've made certain decisions. You've thought ahead. You've planned. You're doing things by the book to the letter. Whether it's a work situation or a marriage situation or a family situation or a boyfriend, girlfriend, fiancé situation. Whatever it is, you're swimming upstream against the flow and you've made a choice to do so in a way to honor the Lord. You're working hard and it's not been easy, but by God's grace, you're persevering and you're pulling through and enduring and trying hard. And at the end, you still get the shaft. What would you do? How do you respond to someone when you believe or know you have been sinned against? 
Because Joseph could have planned to go the full length of the law and still been 100% right. Pregnant, huh? Okay. I'm out of here. I'm divorcing her. I'm pressing charges. And we'll see. We'll see who gets the last laugh out of this. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I'll see you outside the city with a bunch of people who will know your sin, even though she hadn't sinned. The impression he's under is that she had. How do you respond to someone when you believe or know you've been wronged? You know you're right. You're, you are. Joseph is right, so far as he can tell. How do you respond when you know you're right and you know you've been sinned against? You know they're wrong. It should come as no surprise to you that I don't have a perfect marriage. I'm in it. However, there was a specific moment in time when it got a lot better. And that's when Sarah and I decided not to treat each other as we deserved. Not to treat each other as we deserved. In in other words, when I was wrong, Sarah wasn't going to make me pay. Uh, When Sarah was wrong, I wasn't going to make her pay. Because for me to make her pay for her sin, it isn't just mean, it keeps insult upon the cross of Christ when he already paid for it all. Our marriage isn't perfect, but it's a lot better because of one word, mercy. Mercy that we've experienced from God and therefore affects the way we treat one another. Not a perfect marriage, but one of mercy and one of grace. Not perfect, just mercy and grace. Allowing mercy, the mercy that I've received from God, remembering that I am not being treated as my sins deserve, but I'm being treated better than I could ever merit on my own, has profoundly affected the way that I treat others. It's had a life-changing effect in my life. Not perfect, but making that decision to treat others with mercy and grace because you, as a Christian, have been treated with mercy and grace honors Christ. We won't go there today, but many years later, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he's confronted, cornered really, uh, with a question along similar lines regarding a woman who was caught in adultery. And and we can't explain it all, but he was, was, so so perhaps you know the story, John chapter 8, when uh, people come to Jesus with a woman whom they've caught, it says, in the act of adultery. Master, master, get her. Master, master, look, master, bring her up. Master, but we, look, oh, she, she, was caught, she was caught in adultery. And it wasn't this, oh, we're so concerned for the righteousness and keeping sin from among us. What shall we do? Master, master. She, she was, she, we, we saw it. We caught her in the act of adultery. What? And it wasn't, what do we do? It was this. What? Watch this. What, what, what do we do? What, what do we do? John 8 and verse 7, so when they continued asking him, what do we do, huh, huh, what do we do, huh, what should we do? Look, look, she's here, what do we do, she's here. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let let him throw the stone first. Okay, 
so she deserves to be stoned. Gotcha. I have an idea. Let's, um, let's start with the perfect one. So, well, the perfect one, go ahead. You can, uh, you can, you can kick things off. Anyone? Anyone? Joseph was a just man, a righteous man, a saved man, a lover of God, and as such, he didn't want to make a public example of her, but decided to divorce her quietly. How does the mercy and grace of God affect you, you and me, when we know we've been sinned against? Does it affect the way we treat other people, even when we're right? Joseph's love for God, the God of mercy, sets him up to receive a word from the Lord in a dream, which is what we read in the following verses. Look at verse 20, Matthew 1 and verse 20. But while he thought about these things, remember, not should I, but how I'm going to. So he had decided, and now he's thinking about, okay, so how do I work this out? How can I do this quietly, but make sure I get it done? What, when he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Put yourself, gentlemen, put yourself in the story. Joseph, in the story. His whole life, as he can tell, has been shattered. He was looking forward to marrying uh, Mary. Now he's not going to because she's obviously uh, defaulted morally. She might be losing her mind. She says that the, the, the kid is from God. So Joseph gets what little sleep he can, right? Probably not too soundly. Goes to sleep and an angel appears in a dream. Says, jo- gets his attention. Joseph! Oh, Joseph! It's not that Joseph went, who, me? And he says, yes, son of David. No, the angel of the Lord said, Joseph, son of David, reminding him who he is, reminding him of his heritage, reminding him of his lineage. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He's probably, that's exactly what she, that's what she told me. And she will bring forth a son. That's also what she told me. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph has this dream, receives a word from the Lord, and decides, listen to me, decides to obey. You're like, well, it's easy. I mean, I would, I would obey if I heard a word from the Lord. I mean, it would be obvious. No, no, he makes a decision to obey. Well, back then, if people were, I mean, people were spoken to by the Lord, of course they obeyed. Did you ever hear of Jonah? Jonah. Go to Nineveh, says God. No. You obey every time? So we shouldn't just assume that because it was the word of God. Oh, well, Joseph was like, this is clear. That was a hard choice. It was a choice of faith. It was a choice because he knew and loved the Lord He believed what he was being told. It's not just because it was in a dream. How many of you have had dreams? Just raise your hand. You've had dreams. All right, keep your hands up if some of them have been wacky. This one's wacky. It's wacky. So the moral of the story is not, yeah, follow follow your dreams. Because we dream wacky stuff. Wacko. 
Joseph was a man of faith. Joseph was one who loved Jesus. And because Joseph was so acquainted, because he was a, what? A just man, justified in God's eyes, God has just primed the pump for him to hear this word and for him to respond in obedience. Furthermore, in so doing, Joseph takes legal responsibility for Jesus and therefore makes him legally and officially in what? The house of David. So we read in Luke chapter 3 that he's of the line of David through Mary, but he's also of the house of David, which means he's an heir to the throne. And he's part of the Davidic dynasty because of this act of obedience. This is no, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Born of a virgin, big deal. The fact that he chooses to respond both in a way that he believes is wise and compassionate because he's a just man, big deal. The fact that he heeds the word of the Lord and doesn't doesn't disobey and say, that's crazy, that was just a dream, she's still pregnant, there's no way this can be of of a good thing. I'm just tired. But trust the word of the Lord, that's a big deal. And if any one of those things didn't go exactly as they did, uh, not only would I be out of job, but we would all be out of a savior. It's a big deal. Question. Joseph was a just man. He was justified. He was made righteous. He loved the Lord. How does that affect you when you're challenged from the word of God and have an opportunity to obey or do what seems best. There are many times in my life where that which seems best to me is different from what is said in God's word. And I'm, choos- I'm, I'm, I'm at a crossroad because I need to choose the way that seems right to me or the way that is right to God. What about you? Are you a just Man or woman, are you a just boy or a girl? Are you, have you been justified? Have you been sanctified? Have you been saved? If so, how does that fact affect the way you treat others when you've been wronged against? How does that fact, the fact that you've been saved by Jesus Christ, how does that fact affect the way you respond to the word of God? And finally, we need to remember the meaning of Christmas that goes beyond the manger scene and straight to the cross. That the angel highlights in verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of these things for Joseph. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, wait a minute. That's, that's a form of the Hebrew Joshua or Jeshua or Jehoshua, which means Jehovah will save. Huh. Flashback, cross-reference. God with us, Jehovah, he's Jehovah. Whoa. And from the very beginning of Christ's earthly life, even before he was born, his purpose was crystal clear. He will save his people from his sins. How many of you know that song, There's Something About That Name? Okay. Well, all six of us are going to sing it right now. (laughs) Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 
let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Oftentimes, particularly nowadays, Jesus is referred to and we're reminded that he is the greatest teacher ever, ever, because of how he taught the word of God. And, and clearly that's true. I mean, who better to teach the word of God than the word made flesh himself? I mean, he, he had a leg up. People oftentimes remark at Jesus' compassion, as is demonstrated in his healing touch and love for the poor and marginalized. And, and that's clear throughout the Gospels, particularly if you want to see that, read the Gospel of Luke with an eye peeled for looking to how Jesus treats the poor and marginalized. It'll, 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 it'll affect you profoundly. And that's true. Jesus is noted for his ministry to, to women as his life demonstrated their equal value in his sight, in the sight of his father, as he went out of his way to show his love to women who were marginalized either because of their sin, like in John chapter 8, or just because of their gender. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the text says that people marveled that he was, he was speaking to a woman. Oftentimes, Jesus is remembered for his miracles, healing the sick, walking on water, casting demons out of people, feeding thousands, and even raising the dead. And nowadays, this is like seen as a kind of a cool on-ramp as to talking about Jesus. Because it's a heck of a lot easier to talk about these things than to say, Jesus is the Son of God. And you know what this is? I'm not saying any of these things aren't true, but it is reductionism. Reductionism. Reductionism is when you describe something uh, great in terms that are simpler and then think that the simpler description is, is sufficient. It's reductionism. Was Jesus a great teacher? Say yes. Yes, he was. He was a great teacher. The greatest. But, but that's, that's, not, now, that's not unique. There are other great teachers. Have been, will be. That's not unique to Jesus. It is something that is true of Jesus, but it's not unique to Jesus. There are other great, great teachers. Yeah, but the thousands that followed him. I see crummier teachers out there who draw thousands more than Jesus ever drew in his earthly ministry. So it's not unique. It's noteworthy, but not unique. Was Jesus compassionate? Say yes. Yes, he was, of course he was. And since he is God, he's obviously the greatest model of compassion. But that's not unique to Jesus. Others are compassionate, are they not? But Jesus loved the poor and the marginalized and the outcasts of society, and so do others. So that's not really too special either. I mean, I mean, he did it better than anybody because he's the son of God, and I understand that, but others are compassionate. Noteworthy, yes. Unique, no. You say, but what about the miracles? Yeah, Jesus was a miracle worker, no question. They certainly were special, and unique, in my opinion, in their magnitude. Read through the book of Acts. Other perform, others perform miracles. Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Well, 
We are guilty of reductionism if we reduce Jesus to, he's just a great, he's such a great teacher. He's, a, he's an amazing storyteller. He's so, so compassionate. All of those are true. That's just, not his, that's just not what's so special about that name. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'll tell you something about that name. It's the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. Acts 4 and verse 12. And the reason he came from heaven to earth through the womb of a virgin and was adopted into the household of Joseph so that he could be into the household of David and and it was all for one reason summed up in our text today. Verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. Hallelujah to Christ. That is why Christmas exists. That is why we have the lights. That is why we point ourselves towards Christ once a year in this special way to admire the fact that he would enter the world, that he would come down from heaven, be born of a virgin, made man, crucified at the cross, be completely dead, buried, rise again on the third day, and has risen into heaven, ascended into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and it is finished. Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. And that's what he did. And as I've been reading through this portion of Scripture, I was trying to, like I said, it's a narrative. Put yourself in the story. All, pe- all Mary and Joseph kept hearing throughout these, the, the first two chapters of Matthew 1 and 2 is death. Death, 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 death. Circumcised in the eighth day, what a glorious time. And then what, what, what are they told? A sword will pierce your soul. Huh, thanks, that's kind of a buzzkill. Yeah, he's born to die. You need to flee and go to Egypt. Why? Because people want to kill him. Praise the Lord, nobody, how did this, praise the Lord, nobody killed him, but, but tons of other babies died. But praise the Lord, not your son, but you know it was for your son. Death, 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 birth, yes, for death, born to die, to save his people from their sins. And that's the gospel. That's Christmas. Joseph was a just man only because of the stepson he was about to have. Saved by grace through faith. And you and I have that same, same, the same Savior. That same Savior who saves to the uttermost. Gives hope to the hopeless. Gives life to the spiritually dead. Unstops deaf ears opens blind eyes to the truth of our need for him. And oh, what a joy it is when you embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in your imperfect, sinful life, knowing that there is a sinless, spotless Lamb of God who has died for sinners like you and like me and makes intercession for us. Oh, he's with me. Oh, she's with me. That one there. That one, that one, that one, that one, that one. They're mine. Hallelujah to Christ. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, there really is uh, something about the name Jesus. And Lord, it's not just that it, it makes us feel warm and cozy. It's not just that it brings about peace in our hearts. It's because as a result of the God-man, Jesus Christ, we have peace with God because of the wrath that he bore on our behalf on Calvary's tree. And Lord, because of that truth, 
Lord, we are profoundly moved. We are in awe and we, will, uh, we are forever grateful and joyful of what you have made of sinners like us through Jesus Christ. And we just thank you. We thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. Thank you for making all who believe in you just. Thank you for justifying us. Thank you for sanctifying us. And Lord, even now as those who love Jesus Christ are betrothed to him. Lord, we thank you for sanctifying us and making us more and more like our beloved Savior each and every day. Thank you for tearing with us. Thank you for your long-suffering. Thank you for teaching us and growing us to be more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And Lord, we pray that this Christmas, that this Christmas, Lord, we would be reminded of who we are, not on our own, but who we are in Christ, what you have made your people to be. And we say we love you and we thank you and we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.